You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for carving out the time to join me for episode 32, Ways to Set and Maintain Boundaries as a Highly Sensitive Person, or HSP. High sensitivity is a topic that I am so passionate about, and so I'm so glad that you joined me. I can't wait to share this episode with you. But before I launch in, wanted to draw your attention to a few resources. The first is a free four-part video series on building resilience, and the second is a free workbook that is intended to help you uncover perfectionistic tendencies in different domains of your life. So if you haven't had the chance to take a look at those resources, I definitely encourage you to check them out and I'll include links in the episode notes. I also wanted to share that I only have two more coaching spots left for the rest of 2021 so I won't be taking on any more than two more clients before the end of this year and many of the clients in that program identify as highly sensitive and high sensitivity is something that I commonly address in this program and I think many people who identify as highly sensitive are drawn to this program in particular because of of its holistic nature and because it blends wisdom from Eastern and Western healing modalities in a way that is truly curated. It's really catered to meet your unique needs in addressing any areas of your life that feel out of alignment or that are keeping you stuck, whether it be intense self-criticism or perfectionism, perhaps stress, overwhelm, work-life imbalance, difficulties in parenting or romantic relationships, even anxiety and self-doubt. And so while there really truly are a multitude of tools and strategies and practices that can address some of these concerns in people with high sensitivity, there often is a need to thoughtfully implement these practices in ways that consider what high sensitivity means, what high sensitivity looks like from person to person, and this program is therefore an opportunity to get creative and figure out what is sustainable, what truly works, what helps you thrive. So if this program sounds interesting to you and like a helpful way to support you in navigating high sensitivity in your life or even addressing another concern other than high sensitivity, I encourage you to check out my website, melissafoynes.com to learn more. You're also welcome to email me through hello at melissafoynes.com. I'm happy to schedule a time to talk and connect further to see if you think it might be a good match and you're interested in a applying. With all of that being said, let's transition into the topic for today. In today's episode, I'm going to start off with a 
very brief review of the trait of high sensitivity. And if you are interested in more detail about high sensitivity and some of the research on high sensitivity, I encourage you to check out the prior episode, episode 31. And then I will transition into highlighting some of the different kinds of boundaries and containers that can be helpful to consider as an HSP that can really support you in thriving in the world. I'll then talk about barriers to observing limits for HSPs that commonly arise when considering creation or shifting of boundaries and containers. And finally, I'll highlight some tips for observing limits and boundaries and creating containers as an HSP. So to start off, I wanted to emphasize that high sensitivity or being a highly sensitive person or an HSP operates on a spectrum. So there is variability within the category of high sensitivity. Not everyone who identifies as highly sensitive looks the same or responds the same to different kinds of stimulation. Dr. Elaine Aaron is one of the leading researchers on high sensitivity. And in her research, she has identified four basic characteristics of the highly sensitive person or the HSP. And this is referred to often as the DOES model. It stands for depth of processing, overstimulation, emotional responsiveness and empathy, and sensitivity to subtleties. So HSPs tend to process both the external environment and their internal landscape in terms of thoughts, emotions, dreams, memories, more deeply than others. They also tend to get overstimulated in response to some of these internal and external cues. For some HSPs, this might be relegated to certain kinds of stimuli or sensations, and for others, it might feel pretty generalized across the board. There is also a heightened emotional responsiveness and empathy in HSPs. They tend to experience emotions more intensely and potentially in longer lasting ways. They might take longer to recover from emotional experiences and they may be more affected by other people's moods because of this increased empathic ability. And finally, they tend to be more sensitive to subtleties in terms of tone of voice, facial expressions, nonverbal behaviors, micro observations that might go undetected by a non-HSP. So in thinking about the different kinds of boundaries to observe or containers to create as an HSP, I think it's really important to think broadly. So if we take a step back for a minute and really inhabit fully this idea that HSPs really are more overloaded than non-HSPs, they're taking in so much more data from the environment. They're also processing it more deeply and intensively. And so because of that, when we think about boundaries and containers, we really need to think really broadly and multidimensionally. So you might consider your physical environment. This could include your house, your office, certain spaces that are attached to your house outdoors or places where you go to exercise could also be your car. So HSPs, again, are really affected by 
their physical environments and the colors and textures and smells and sounds and just all of the different features of physical space even how it's organized how clean it is and so thinking about different boundaries you might want to assert when it comes to your physical environment and or containers that you might want to create and when i when i talk about containers what i really mean is having some kind of structure having some kind of vessel that can hold the complexity of emotion and experiences that you are having. So if you think about a glass of water, the container of the glass helps keep the shape of the water. It keeps the glass from overflowing. Whereas if you just spilled that same amount of water on the floor, it would likely spread in, and spread fast in ways that didn't feel contained or organized. So when we are operating in the world with high sensitivity, oftentimes creating containers to hold the complexity and depth of the information that we're processing, the emotions and sensations that we're experiencing can be a very helpful way to ground and provide some kind of stability and organization. Another area of life to consider is time and your schedule. So considering things like what time of day do you prefer to go certain places that might be crowded, like the grocery store or the pharmacy? How often are you going to take time off or go on vacation? How often are you taking what I call sensory breaks throughout the day where you're really minimizing sensory stimulation as much as possible? So really thinking about also how you want to structure your schedule. Are you someone who potentially is better at professional obligations at night and household responsibilities in the morning or the reverse. So really being mindful about your nervous system and what it needs to function optimally based on time of day and schedule and how various obligations and responsibilities get organized. You might also consider boundaries in relationships. So ways of spending time with other people in terms of the nature and the type and the frequency of contact. Perhaps you prefer more in-person contact or more contact over the phone or FaceTime or perhaps different people you feel like you can take in different kinds of doses. Perhaps one person because of their energy, because of your empathy for them and what they are going through in their life, you feel as though you don't necessarily have the bandwidth to spend more than a half hour with them at a time or that it's better for you to see them in your home versus their home. So really thinking about some boundaries and containers around relationships and ways of spending time together. You could also consider agreements around conflict resolution. Many HSPs take a longer time to process what is happening, again, because of the amount of information that they are taking in. And so that is something to to consider when it comes to conflict resolution. And also how might you go about identifying and asking for what you need when it comes to relationships. And also considering boundaries and containers for self-care or alone time, as well as sensory overload, how that is going to be managed. You might also consider boundaries in specific relationship types. So perhaps there are different boundaries that might apply in a romantic partnership versus a child-parent relationship versus a relationship with a coworker. 
You might also consider boundaries and containers that you create both at the start and the end of the day. So this is not by any way, shape, or form an exhaustive list, but I did want to start this conversation with giving you some ideas about different domains of your life to consider because I think oftentimes we don't necessarily think about boundaries and containers in a broad way. We often think about saying no in the context of relationships, but not necessarily expanding beyond that. So I think it's really important to figure out for you In what areas of your life would it be helpful to have more structure, more of a container, more of a shared understanding about expectations, something that would really help you feel as though you were thriving rather than just surviving. So I will talk about some ideas and strategies for creating containers and observing boundaries in a few minutes, but before we get to that, I want to highlight some common barriers that HSPs often face in this process of observing limits and creating containers. So again, this is not exhaustive, but these are some of the most common ones that I see in my work with clients. The first is empathy for others. So as I said in the prior episode, and as I mentioned briefly in this one, one characteristic of high sensitivity is a strong capacity for emotional attunement and empathy. And so what that means when it comes to containers and boundaries is that there are times that you might find yourself veering towards not holding a boundary, not asking for what you need, saying yes to someone else in order to avoid hurting them or disappointing them. So you're making choices with them in mind, which is a very beautiful trait and quality to be so mindfully attuned to another person and how your actions might affect them. Yet oftentimes this gets thrown off balance and you prioritize them and their emotional needs at the expense of yourself. And even when the other person hasn't necessarily expressed anything outwardly, you likely have such perceptive abilities to pick up on subtle changes in their tone of voice or their body language or their facial expressions, etc., that indicate disappointment or hurt. So they might not admit or say that they're hurt or disappointed because maybe they don't want you to then take that on. But you might still notice it anyways. And so Again, knowing all of this and also as an HSP being a great problem solver, being able to anticipate different trajectories of how different actions might unfold, which again feeds into effective problem solving, you might identify the possibility of causing harm either to that other person and or the relationship and therefore make your decisions accordingly. You as an HSP likely also really value social connection and relationships and so you might end up prioritizing the other person's needs in order to avoid the potential rupture to the relationship or the harm that is caused for the other person. Related to empathy for others is guilt. So often when HSPs do make a request or observe a boundary or create a container, there can be a lot of guilt that is felt that can get in the way of sustaining that boundary. We might take it back. We might say it's not a big deal. And so I think one important piece to keep in mind is separating out guilt that is justified from guilt that is unjustified. 
And what I mean by that is guilt is justified in a circumstance in which you have violated a moral code. You've gone against your values. But guilt is unjustified when you are feeling guilty in a way that doesn't match the facts of the situation. You're feeling guilty because you are potentially over-assuming responsibility for someone else's emotional landscape. And so I think one way that we can navigate unjustified guilt, so the kind of guilt that we feel when we observe boundaries that we're entitled to observe, for instance, is to enhance our ability to tolerate other people's disappointment. So essentially, the more that we observe the boundaries and create the containers, the more practice we get in sorting through other people's disappointments and really allowing ourselves to feel our feelings in response to their feelings and getting to a place where we feel confident and successful in our ability to do so. I think also there are times where people aren't necessarily responsive to our boundaries or our limits. They can often react pretty intensely in a negative way at first and I think reminding yourself that that is something that can happen when you disrupt the status quo or the homeostasis of a relationship can be something that can incentivize you to stay the course and to get through. Another piece that can be really helpful with both the empathy and the guilt piece is to really be mindful of regulating your nervous system which we talked a lot about in the past episode and we'll talk a little bit about here so owning your feelings not berating yourself if you say or notice oh i'm feeling guilt about this this situation when i know that that's not really justified it doesn't really match the situation and just owning that that guilt is present and that's okay that is totally understandable and human and makes perfect sense in light of being an hsp Another barrier can be fear of conflict. So because our brains and nervous systems are so attuned to these subtleties, we are often vulnerable to overstimulation. And so if we know that observing a boundary, creating a container risks criticism or some kind of conflict or confrontation, we might take steps to try to avoid the anticipated overstimulation and emotional reaction that we might experience in response to a conflict. And finally, another barrier that I commonly see is low self-esteem. So really judging ourselves for our high sensitivity and feeling as though we're the ones that need to change, that it's not okay to ask for these things, that we're not entitled to do so. And using these judgments to label ourselves like, oh, I'm so sensitive, I'm so overly emotional, I'm so neurotic, I'm so weak, I'm so inhibited, all of those labels can result in a lot of self-doubt, a lot of self-esteem issues, a lot of inner self-criticism. So when you see yourself as flawed or problematic, you will likely tend to override your own needs in order to please other people and to prioritize them and to maybe even fit in. You might try to suppress your high sensitivity in order to emulate how it appears that others navigate their lives. So that is often something that gets in the way too, is that we feel like 
this is our problem and that we're not entitled to ask for this, to express this, to create this kind of container, or we think it's stupid, we think it's unnecessary, we think we're babying ourselves. All this negative judgmental language that we use is often a reflection of an underlying challenge with our self-esteem, with embracing high sensitivity as the superpower that it so often is. And so that's why in the last episode, I spent a lot of time talking about how internalized judgment is often one of the biggest enemies of high sensitivity and that is a reason that we need to counteract and reshape a lot of these judgmental narratives. So the first tip for observing limits and boundaries as an HSP is to stay balanced in your life and to consistently implement meaningful self-care practices because that is going to create a really important foundation from which you can more skillfully observe limits. It's almost like you can't expect yourself to observe limits and put the energy and effort into it that it requires if you're running on empty, if your gas tank doesn't have any gas in it. And so what I mean by balance is not veering towards extremes. So HSPs living in a world that often doesn't suit HSPs can result in extreme behavior. We might, in an effort to really fit into the culture, tend toward overscheduling. We might thrive off of that adrenaline or a lot of intense chaos or, or think that we do. Or we might avoid, we might disengage because we undersell ourselves. We think that things are going to be too much. And so part of the work in boundaries and self-care is figuring out how to achieve a balance so that we're walking more of a middle path. We're not veering towards those extremes, whether it be in terms of how we schedule our lives, how we engage in our lives, how we participate in relationships, but also knowing when a boundary needs to be pretty rigid and firm and when it can be more permeable. And that often takes a lot of practice and a lot of inner attunement to what is and isn't working for us. And sometimes it takes time to really evaluate whether or not some container or some boundary is actually serving us and helping us in the way that we intended. So Julie Bajeland, who is a therapist who specializes in HSPs, and has done a lot of research, she has a lot of great resources, I'll include her in the episode notes, has this wonderful self-care metaphor where she talks about thinking about humans as operating with batteries. And if we're walking around with a low battery, we're basically existing on fumes. And when we are existing on fumes, that is going to make our stress rise and our sensory systems go on overload. So she likens it to flooring the gas pedal of a car all day long. And when you do that, the car engine eventually burns out. So as an HSP, we want to start the day with a full battery. We want to do things that replenish the energy that was depleted from the battery throughout the course of the day. And we want to prevent burnout. We want to make sure that we're not flooring the gas pedal with a basically empty battery. So again, I really do feel like arriving at 
a sustainable, personalized self-care plan that really supports your individual unique needs as an HSP is really important. So I'm going to share some general tips, but know that these might not work for you. You might need to experiment and iterate, and this is less about following a prescribed set of rules and guidelines and more about figuring out what works for you. So one of the core practices in taking care of yourself as an HSP is getting a lot of sleep and having some quiet alone time each day to process and reflect. Again, this is true for most people. And this is really important to highlight because this isn't often something that fits into a quote-unquote traditional definition of self-care since our traditional definition of self-care is often based off of what works for the dominant population, which is non-HSPs, which is 75 to 80% of the population. So some researchers have recommended at least two hours of quiet downtime per day, one day of quiet downtime per week, and one week of quiet downtime per season. Again, that may or may not work for you, but those are some guidelines that you could potentially experiment with. Another piece that is essential to self-care and also can promote sleep is having a slowed down routine for both bedtime and awakening. So essentially how you start and end the day really sets the tone for how the day unfolds if it's in the morning and how the nighttime will transpire if it happens at night. So if you are rushing, rushing, rushing and you already have a nervous system that is vulnerable to being overwhelmed and overactivated, it's all that much more important to really slow down. And that way you can potentially awaken each day with less depletion. So that might look like having a ritual of a pretty structured routine, perhaps doing the same three to five things when you wake up in the morning or before bed and approaching it in a more slow, calm kind of way. And again, that can send signals to your brain that this is how you're going to approach the day or this is a preparation for sleep. In arriving at some kind of morning and bedtime routine that really works for you, I think it's important to cultivate something that you can stick with. I had a meditation teacher once who would say that the quote-unquote best meditation is the meditation that you'll actually do. And I think the same rationale applies to these morning and evening routines. So I'll share a little bit about some of my morning and evening routines in case it helps you start brainstorming what alterations you might want to make to existing routines and if you don't have current routines, some options you might want to consider. In the morning, it can be helpful to avoid diving into work or screens the first thing. Personally, I love even just lying in bed without talking or doing anything for a few moments before I get up. So I might open my eyes, look around a bit, maybe do some gentle stretching and really slowly get out of bed. So I might first just sit up on the edge of my bed, stretch, take a few deep breaths. And then once I'm ready to rise, I might look out my window and just notice the sky or the trees and bushes that surround my house. 
I also incorporate several Ayurvedic practices into my morning routine. So I will do tongue scraping and oil pulling and neti pot and all of those practices again help me engage in the day or start the day with a slower, more easeful, more present centered kind of focus and pace. And the oil pulling I love as also a way to help me stay silent for a few moments in the morning without talking. It's really hard to talk to other people when your mouth is full of oil that you're swishing. I'll also have a cup of hot water with lemon, which helps kickstart digestion and just helps my stomach feel more settled and slowly feels like it starts waking up my organs a bit lubricating things internally some people find it helpful to exercise before they ingest any kind of information in the day but for me personally it often works to exercise after my son is off to school because I just have more protected time then and there's less likelihood of interruption in terms of an evening routine, for me personally, one of the most important and also difficult things I can do to support myself and my nervous system is to not expose myself to screens for at least three hours before bedtime. As many of you may know, there's a lot of research focused on the impact of blue light from screens and devices on our systems. It can suppress melatonin, which disrupts our circadian rhythm, as well as the quality of our sleep. And some of us are much more sensitive to the impacts of blue light relative to others. I would love to see someone do a research study on the impact of blue light and HSPs because I know for me this is something that I'm really sensitive to but it is challenging because oftentimes after my son goes to sleep at night that's a time where I can even catch up on work or social time with friends over FaceTime or email or texting but I just know that I really need to commit to not engaging in screens for at least two to three hours before bedtime. In addition to not viewing screens, I also find it really helpful to dim the lights in my whole house. There's some research that shows that even the brightness of a table lamp is enough to suppress melatonin and disrupt sleep and interrupt your circadian rhythm. So even dimming the lights around your house can again signal to your brain and your nervous system that it's time to wind down. There is also some research that red light has less of a disruptive quality than blue light, so that's also something to consider, but even if you don't have access to red lights as bedside lamps or lamps throughout your house, even just dimming the lights around your house can be really beneficial. On this note, I think it's also really important to try not to engage in activities that are too stimulating, whether it's music or talking or TV. So really giving your senses a chance to rest and to get the signal that it's time to rest so that you can then more easily transition into sleep. You can also do a warm oil massage or abhyanga as it's referred to in Ayurveda, which is 
deeply soothing for the nervous system. It helps nourish so many different tissue layers. And if you don't want to do a full oil massage for your whole body, you could just do the head and feet. And that can also be a really great way to prepare for sleep. I will often make my tea for the next day because some of the teas that I make are more potent or the medicinal effects of the herbs are activated through soaking overnight. So I'll often prepare my teas for the next day. If I am doing some cooking the next day, I might soak beans or legumes or do some light food prep for the next day and might even engage in a three to five minute breath practice or gratitude practice and for me personally I know a lot of people talk about the importance of gratitude and the way that I've found this practice to work in my own life isn't through writing I know people often will make gratitude lists that really hasn't resonated with me so much so for me personally what I do is rather simple I'll close my eyes and call to mind something that I am grateful for, particularly something within that day. So I might picture myself dancing if I had a dance class that day or my son laughing and I'll really try to soak in the sensory details of that memory. I might even place both of my hands on my heart as a way to really evoke that sense of of gratitude. I'll also notice how that gratitude feels, where it registers in my body. So those elements of really calling to mind what I feel grateful for, really connecting with my own body through placing my hands on my heart, through noticing the sensations in my body that arise when I truly experientially feel this sense of gratitude has allowed me to more deeply connect to a sense of gratitude rather than when I have tried to write a list of things down that I feel grateful for. Another aspect of my bedtime routine that I really love is I do a gua sha facial massage after I wash my face at bedtime. So this can help alleviate tension. For me, I often carry a lot of tension in my jaw and my forehead. So this really helps relieve tension there in a way that can prepare for sleep. It also can it has a number of health benefits. It's a traditional Chinese medicine practice that isn't only practiced with the face, but can be practiced with the face. There's also some circulation benefits, some lymphatic drainage benefits, just to name a few, because there are a multitude of benefits to this practice. Because I'm not a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner, I don't want to share too much about this practice, because I want to stay in my lane and not operate outside of my scope of practice but I did want to share it on a more personal note since it is a practice that I personally love and also as a parent for those of you who are HSPs and parents or you don't have to be an HSP to use this practice the gua sha treatment or practice can also be really helpful to help kids sleep at night so it can be used to gently scrape the muscles on either side of the spine in a motion moving from the head towards the sacrum and I would encourage you to consult with 
an acupuncturist or a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner to ensure that you're using the right amount of pressure and practicing it safely. But I always find it really helpful when there's a practice that not only serves us, but is something that we can share with other people in our lives. Another piece to consider is how you structure your daily schedule. So as we've been saying, HSPs are really wired to be very thoughtful and reflective before acting. And so that means that a lot of brain power goes into even making small decisions, like what you're going to eat for the day, or whether you're going to have iced coffee or hot coffee, or what route you're going to take to your destination, as well as transitions between tasks. And so in order to counter some of that exhaustion that can come from the brain power that goes towards those tasks and transitions and decisions, you can create a predictable daily routine for yourself. It's interesting because a lot of HSPs actually are not super excited about the idea of routine and structure at first. And what comes to mind for me about this is that I had a yoga teacher once who would say, not every practice is for every body and everybody. And what she meant by that is sometimes we gravitate towards certain activities or approaches that aren't necessarily things that will bring us into balance. So if I'm really revved up and kind of existing on fumes, I probably am actually going to be more likely to go to a super hot, vigorous yoga class and maybe overschedule my day without a lot of breaks in between because that's just sort of me leaning into the energy of what I'm feeling and how I'm approaching things. Whereas in actuality, slowing down, having more spaciousness in my schedule, perhaps doing a more restorative yoga class is actually going to be more beneficial. So this doesn't necessarily mean that your intuition is wrong about what you need, but more to just highlight that sometimes what we gravitate towards isn't always what is most likely to bring us into balance. And so I think that's important to keep in mind so that you can approach some of these inclinations with some thoughtfulness and care and attention. Another piece is to be really careful about the kinds of activities that you engage in so that you can really live in a sustainable way, that you can approach life with presence and really cultivate vitality. And when we have some of these supports and structures in place as HSPs, we're more able to access the strengths of being an HSP, the creativity, the perceptive qualities, the empathy, the intuition, the conscientiousness, and the diligence because we're more connected with ourselves. We're able to navigate life with more ease. We're not overexhausted. We're not overwhelmed. We're not burnt out. And so we can show up in ways that are consistent with our values across different life domains. So when I mention being mindful about the kinds of activities that you engage in. I mean both in terms of your life, but also in terms of self-care. So considering, okay, if there's a day where I've really had to work a lot and I know that my job is something that really depletes me as an HSP, perhaps you are in 
the service industry or you're an activist or an artist and you just as much as you love your work you know that it also takes a lot out of you to give to your work in the ways that you can and do and want to you might consider that perhaps those are days where you need to be more mindful about integrating the kinds of activities that replenish you or maybe when you do have a break you are very intentional intentional excuse me about what you do in that break so i'm going to share some ideas about the kinds of self-care activities that i have found helpful in my life slash the clients with whom i work have been helpful so this is a curated list based on personal and professional experience and again this is just an attempt to give you a springboard and a foundation from which to consider what might work in your life so some people when they are wanting a break from stimulation find certain artistic activities really valuable it could be viewing art creating art it could also be things like coloring scrapbooking woodworking or baking as you can imagine for some people that might feel very overstimulating so that's why it's really important for you to figure out what works for you for some people engaging in some kind of gentle movement or dance can be really helpful and there is some research that shows that swinging and slow linear and rhythmical movements can be really calming whereas more like fast and rotary and erratic movements are more excitatory so you could also consider something that involves some kind of rocking in a rocking chair in a swing or a hammock you could also consider taking a slow walk at sunset or even slowly pacing around your room in the dark with your eyes closed so a number of options when it comes to movement you might also consider music and either playing music or listening to music and interestingly there is some research this comes from nina kraus who's a professor of neurobiology at northwestern she talks about music entrainment and how aside from songbirds humans are the only creatures that automatically feel the beat of a song and so music can really entrain our bodies on a physical level by activating the muscle control centers of our brains that get us moving to the rhythm and there can also be this emotional impact because they can guide our moods into synchronicity with the tone of the music so I think that's really interesting and also helpful from the perspective of being really intentional about what music you choose to listen to or what sounds you surround yourself with some people feel more activated by music and so others find different kinds of noise beneficial for instance pink noise I do want to lift up that many people think of white noise as something that could be calming and soothing and if it works for you totally support you and encourage you to continue but will say that white noise has been shown to induce the release of cortisol which is a stress hormone and can when it's released at times where there isn't 
an activation of the stress response needed, it can impair functioning in your prefrontal cortex, which is the area of your brain that can help regulate executive functions like planning and reasoning and impulse control. And so it could disrupt potentially your capacity to think clearly and retain information, the release of, of cortisol. And this is because hypothetically speaking, the theory is that because white noise contains both high-pitched and low-pitched frequencies of equal power, that that creates the stress response and the release of the cortisol level. So unlike white noise, there is some research that shows that pink noise has more positive biological impacts, specifically on sleep quality and memory. And so pink noise does like white noise contain every frequency the human ear can hear but not all at the same intensity so the lower frequencies are more prominent and the higher frequencies are less intense so it's less like static and more like a a soothing rain so it's like being lulled to the sound of crashing waves or rustling leaves so that's more about pink noise so again just all the more reason to be mindful of how things affect your own body. There's less research on brown noise and brown noise has lower frequencies than pink noise. Think of maybe rumbling thunder or the low roar of a large waterfall, but there are anecdotally many people who find it relaxing. So that is another option as well. You could also consider your spiritual practice, whether that is meditation, whether that is prayer, whether it is something else for many people spiritual practice can be a way to self-care for many people spiritual practice is, is spending quality time with animals or family or special places in nature might even be journaling or writing you also might consider certain leisure activities that you find soothing so this could be being in a quiet space filled with pillows for cuddling where you read or listen to a book on tape and maybe you dim the lighting, you close the drapes, you have solid colored furniture and rugs versus patterned ones or maybe there are very neutral colors rather than bold ones. Maybe you hide the clutter in bins or boxes or behind doors. Maybe you hang a curtain in front of bookshelves or things that feel overstimulating and distracting and maybe you wear clothing and colors that you find soothing and non-abrasive. So really figuring out what are the activities that will minimize stimulation, that will soothe your nervous system, and also what are the spaces in which you can enjoy those activities. As I mentioned in the episode prior to this one, episode 31, for all of us and for HSPs in particular, it can be really valuable to think about our sense organs beyond the traditional five senses approach and to consider, of course, taste, touch, sound, vision, and smell, but also things like balance and movement and temperature and proprioceptive input feeling pressure, feeling your body in space, interoceptive awareness, being able to register and sense the sensations and 
movements within your physical body. So as we are thinking about meaningful self-care practices that really bring a sense of nurturance and soothing to the nervous system, I think it's important to consider all of these different kinds of categories. And there are many scientists and researchers who say that there are other kinds of sensory inputs as well, but that all of these areas are considered and particularly you for yourself consider what are the sensory inputs that tend to be the most overstimulating because those are the ones that you might want to prioritize when you are considering what kinds of activities to engage in as part of your regular self-care practices. To this end, many HSPs find a deep firm pressure to be very soothing for their nervous system. So classically, you might think of a weighted blanket or a weighted collar or pillow, something to that effect. You might also consider compression clothing, short-sleeved and long-sleeved t-shirts, shorts, or pants or stockings. Those are all ways to create a sense of firm pressure in the body. You can also consider cuddling with a partner or pets or children or even tightly wrapping your own arms around your torso and crossing your legs and squeezing your hands together. So almost like you're wrapping up into a tight ball. You can also push into a wall using different parts of your body like your back, your glutes, your hands, head or shoulders, or even leaning forward with your hands on the edge of a desk or table, gently pushing as if to move it, almost like you're doing push-ups or you could actually do push-ups on the table if it's stable. Other ways that you can create this sense of deep pressure could be even wrapping yourself tightly in a regular blanket. In terms of some ways to soothe senses from an auditory perspective, many people find that having some control over environmental noises whenever possible is extremely helpful, especially if people have certain noises or sounds that are particularly noxious or overwhelming to them. So using devices like noise-canceling headphones or there are some really great earplugs that personally changed my life when I started using them. They're silicone-based. It's almost like a waxy material. I can include this in the episode notes as well. And they really block out sound much more effectively, I think, than a foam earplug. And I am someone who sleeps so much better wearing those kinds of noise-canceling or noise-blocking devices. You can also consider listening to something that is soothing, like we were talking about earlier. This could be music or the sounds of rain, waterfall, ocean waves, listening to a tabletop fountain or aquarium. And again, if you are feeling overstimulated by noise, silence might actually be better. But for some HSPs, when there's more, a more rhythmic, predictable sound that is associated with calming and soothing, that can actually be just as beneficial to their nervous system. Visual input, of course, can also be quite overstimulating. And so many HSPs are well served by simplifying their visual field in a way that has a calming or organizing effect. So this could be in terms of the types of colors and textures and patterns that are around. It could also be in terms of messiness and organization and if it's challenging to have certain physical spaces in your home or your office or your car be very well organized you can also consider putting blankets or sheets 
over things to cover up the aspects of the environment that feel activating and stress stressful to you. You could also consider watching flames of a candle or in a fireplace. Many people practice a specific form of meditation that involves a flame called trataka. So certainly that's a more formal practice that you might benefit from. And also finding other kinds of visual stimulation that are soothing and rhythmic like watching ocean waves or fish swimming in an aquarium. Tactile input is another type of input that can be overstimulating. For many HSPs, light touch can be noxious and this can happen in the form of certain textures or fabrics, clothing with labels. And so just being really sensitive to the clothing that you wear, the sheets on your bed, the fabrics of your furniture in your home, even the materials that you use for things like cloth napkins or towels. If you're finding yourself overstimulated by some kind of olfactory input or some kind of smell, you can consider trying to get to a place that feels relatively scent-free. Oftentimes outdoor spaces can be really beneficial for that. You can also consider trying to replace the scent that is bothering you with a different kind of scent that has more of a calming, soothing kind of quality. But again, it really depends on whether you would benefit from just removing any kind of olfactory stimulation as much as you can versus trying to replace whatever it is that you're feeling overstimulated by with a different kind of scent. And temperature is another consideration. So many people find that they can be very overstimulated by extremes in temperature or even the feeling of wind against their skin. So oftentimes having warm or cold compresses on the skin that is feeling overstimulated can be soothing. Having some kind of oil massage or abhyanga can be really helpful. And also even taking a warm or cold bath or shower and even having certain kinds of beverages or foods that you find soothing and grounding. So for many people, warm, easy to digest foods and warm beverages can really be a way to care for the nervous system. But again, it's really important to personalize this and figure out what makes the most sense in your body. So I really hope these examples give you some ideas about ways that you can both stay balanced in your life and consistently implement meaningful self-care practices in the service of creating that solid foundation from which you can more effectively observe limits. The next tip is to regularly tune into your inner landscape in terms of your physical sensations, your thoughts, your emotions, any images that come to mind, any memories. So really finding a consistent practice for checking in with yourself. So as you know, one of my favorite practices for life in general, but especially for HSPs, is mindfulness meditation. This is a way that we can really retrain the brain to slow down and pay more attention to what's happening in the body. Again, many HSPs will try to adjust and adapt 
to the environment because they are resilient and so they might really try to fit into the fast-paced culture which can lead to a disconnection from that inner landscape and so helping HSPs to be more attuned and aware to what is happening within their bodies minds hearts and spirits can help them feel more empowered to be in control of their environment and have a sense of of influence on their ability to regulate their sense of overwhelm. So every time, for example, you practice a mindfulness meditation and catch your mind wandering and bring it back to whatever anchor you're focusing on, perhaps it's breath, perhaps it's sound, perhaps it's sensations in your body, it's like you really are building that awareness muscle in a way that will generalize to your life outside of those specific practices. So if, for example, you are becoming overwhelmed at work or a party or even one-on-one with another person, that brain training of being able to tune into your inner landscape, of being able to bring the attention back to the present moment can help you more readily recognize when you need to break take a break and what kind of break you need what kind of break will most bring you balance so it's this ability to be both more present to your inner landscape in the midst of stress as well as a recognition of what you can access to help support your nervous system I also am a huge fan of having a consistent system for checking in with yourself and monitoring your stress level. So my clients often laugh because I'm always talking about bathroom breaks and car breaks because if you say, oh, I have to go get something in my car or if I have to use the restroom, people usually don't give it a second thought. And you can use that time to really ask yourself two key questions. How am I doing? What do I need? I often expand it a little bit to what do I notice in my body, what am I thinking, what emotions am I experiencing, and then what do I need. But to simplify it, it can be how am I doing, what do I need. And as HSPs, we tend to be very externally focused because this is one of our superpowers. We're able to attend to the external environment and deeply process the whole context and all of the subtleties and because of those capacities combined with our empathy we're often scanning the environment to assess other people's needs often at the expense of being aware of our inner needs now of course again HSPs as a group really vary and so there are some people who might be more attuned to their inner sensations than they are to the external world. So this is a generalization but all this to say that when you have been trained to really focus externally and have perhaps been taught that you overreact, that your feelings are too big, you're too sensitive, you're too this, you're too that, it often does condition you to look towards the environment for cues about what to feel and whether what you are feeling is valid and legitimate. And so because of that social conditioning, many HSPs do need to learn or relearn how to explore internally what they need 
without filtering it through other people's needs or without necessarily treating it as less of a priority than what other people need. So in essence, HSPs might be also very good at knowing what's going on inside of them and what's going on in the environment, but the way that it gets integrated is a way in which the other person or other people get prioritized because of that high empathy. So this is something often that needs to be retrained. And ideally, if you are checking in with yourself and you're asking perhaps the simple question of how I'm doing, I often encourage clients to consider a 0 to 10 point scale. You can also do 0 to 100 if, if your brain works better in that kind of way. But assigning a numerical value to how you're doing, how stressed out you are. You can pick a word that makes sense to you. It could be stress, it could be activation, it could be anxiety, whatever cue or label helps you ascertain how well-regulated you feel, how stable and calm your nervous system feels. But essentially, if you force yourself to assign a numerical value, it really does force you to slow down and pick something. So ideally, we are at an optimal level when our stress is at more of a 2 to 3 on a 10-point scale rather than 5 and above. So that's what we are looking for. And if you notice that you are at a 5 or an 8, certainly that's a time to really figure out, okay, what can I do to bring myself closer to that 2 to 3 range? I use this metaphor a lot with clients of a cup of water. And anything you can do to regulate your nervous system to decrease your stress level is like lowering the volume of water in the cup. And the lower the volume of water in the cup, the more bandwidth you have before the cup overflows. So if your volume of water is pretty close to the brim, it's not going to take a very big stressor to overflow that cup. So if you think about your stress level like a cup of water and these tools and strategies as ways to really shape the volume of that water and enhance and increase your window of tolerance and your bandwidth, I think that can be a really powerful visual and metaphor. Another strategy that can be really helpful is to consider enhancing your interoceptive awareness. So as I said, many HSPs are able to perceive bodily sensations pretty readily, like heartbeats, and others may not feel able to register and attune to bodily sensations very much at all. And in fact, many HSPs, again, have been taught to ignore, suppress, minimize, hide, deny their feelings, which can result in a disconnection from bodily sensation. And and some HSPs will even avoid vigorous physical exercise or certain activities that might be anxiety-provoking to avoid the intensity of bodily sensations that might be produced as a result of those activities because they've also come to associate some of those bodily sensations in a negative way. And this can happen on a subconscious level in a way that we're not aware of. So you can imagine a situation in which someone experiencing an intense emotion, which also has a slew of bodily sensations associated with it, if that person tends to be judged or criticized in response to their 
emotional experiencing and expression, they might come to associate those bodily sensations with that kind of negative feedback. And then it can become quite self-protective to not be aware of the very sensations that your brain has come to associate with judgment and negative treatment in the past. And there is some research that shows that enhanced interoceptive capacities tend to reduce anxiety. So if you are better able to accurately assess your bodily sensations, it can have a grounding and a calming effect. One, I think, pretty accessible way to practice enhancing interoception is to do some kind of physical activity that gets your heart rate going. It could be jumping jacks, it could be biking, it could be lifting weights in a seated position. So it all depends on your level of mobility. But something that gets your heart rate increased could even be watching a scary movie or something like that. Not that I would necessarily recommend that to an HSP, but I think you get the point. And then trying to count your heartbeats without putting a finger to your pulse. Another really helpful practice can be a body scan. So when you experience some kind of emotion, really trying to plug into what you feel in your body, in different locations in your body, in deeper tissue layers, in more surface tissue layers, in terms of temperature, tension, tingling, numbing, spaciousness, cramping, any kind of words that you can use to describe your experiences can really enhance this level of awareness. And some people find this practice more accessible if they do it through visual arts. So drawing out a diagram of the body using different colors and patterns to represent the sensations inside. So for some people, accessing these words and attaching these word labels to felt experience in the body can feel a little bit stilted. And so expressing this visually can be another really helpful tool. And so in case you want a little bit more motivation to integrate mindfulness meditation as an HSP, there is some preliminary research that shows that following an eight-week program of mindfulness-based stress reduction, which includes mindfulness meditation, HSPs suffered from less stress and appeared to have less social anxiety. It also This study also showed that through participation in this eight-week program, HSPs had developed even greater capacities for empathy and personal growth and self-acceptance. And all of these effects persisted four weeks later. So definitely some additional support for mindfulness meditation with HSPs. So the second step, being able to further develop and hone your capacity to tune into your inner landscape in a more regular way, will serve you in then determining what you both need and want in terms of boundaries and life containers. So this is the third tip or step, which is translating that inner awareness into insights about what you need and want so that you can structure your life accordingly and potentially ask other people for what you need. So earlier in the episode, I gave some examples about the different life domains to consider as you're contemplating boundaries and containers. 
And I want to expand upon a few. So one life domain that I mentioned was relationships and getting a better sense of what you need in terms of different relationships in your life. And I mentioned conflict resolution being one of them. So for many HSPs, because of the amount of time and energy that they dedicate to processing internal and external stimulation, being in the midst of conflict can be really challenging. So it can be really helpful to take breaks in the midst of conflict and have an agreed upon way to implement that break so that neither person feels abandoned or invalidated. So having a shared language for taking that break as well as a commitment to when people will return as well as a commitment to what people are going to do during that break. So as many of you have probably experienced, if we take a break from something and we stew and ruminate and really sit with lots of judgment, that doesn't necessarily help us bring emotional intensity down. So making sure that you are caring for your nervous system in ways that support you during that break. Dr. Erin also talks in her book a little bit about silent listening. So that is something that I know many HSPs really find helpful in their relationships. So almost like a turn-taking where the other person agrees to not interrupt, to let you finish, and to have some kind of silent period so that feelings, preferences, opinions can be expressed without needing to immediately respond to what the other person has to say. There also may be a need to educate people in your support network about high sensitivity. A lot of times people aren't aware of what high sensitivity is, what it means, ways that they can help in supporting it. Yet of course this is also a negotiation because even if the person in the relationship that you are considering making adjustments to is not an HSP and they very well could be they even if they are an HSP they might have different needs but if they're not they still might have other needs when it comes to conflict and so figuring out what is a way that we can find a middle path and meet both of our needs Another piece that I think can come up in relationships in terms of boundaries as HSPs is being really direct. Sometimes we soften our message, we shy away from sharing the full depth of what we're experiencing because of empathy, because of not wanting to hurt people's feelings. And so really practicing that level of directness is really important. And as you've heard me say before, oftentimes the more practice we get with being direct, the more practice we get with tolerating other people's responses and the discomfort that we might feel in being more direct. There also might be ways to set limits on communication. So potentially not bringing up emotionally charged topics too late at night. If you know that for your nervous system, that doesn't really work. We have a a rule like this in my household where we don't bring up supercharged conversations after 8 o'clock at night because I, I just have a hard time after that. I actually can't do much of anything at night that is super activating because I will just be pretty wired and awake for the rest of the evening. So that's something to consider. And also, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes we associate boundaries with saying no, which is a form of a boundary. But also remembering that we can 
say yes, but on our terms. So it's not this black and white, you say yes or you say no. You can say yes with a contingency. So you can say, oh, unfortunately, I can't help you right now, but I'm happy to help you tomorrow at four. Or really coming up with, okay, I really care about this relationship, but I don't feel like I have the bandwidth to attend to this person in the way that they're asking right in this moment. So what are the conditions and circumstances that I can put into place that will allow me to support this person in the way that I want that's consistent with my values, that is in alignment with really trying to nourish and sustain the relationship. So again trying to veer away from extremes I know that is one way that we started this conversation today was talking about balance and really figuring out okay is is there a middle path there might not always be and sometimes a straight up yes or a straight up no is totally legitimate but sometimes we kind of forget about that middle area I also want to talk a bit about parenting because I think that often HSPs are amazing parents they're so attuned to their children and yet sometimes HSPs have children that are HSPs and that can present certain challenges and sometimes HSPs can have children who are not HSPs and who might be very loud or very physically active or very touchy-feely and sometimes that can be really challenging as a parent it can bring up a lot of guilt and so making sure that you validate yourself, that you validate what you need, that if you don't want to be touched in a given moment, that doesn't make you a bad parent, that doesn't mean you don't love your child. It just means that that is not working for your nervous system. So if you remember the prior episode, if you've listened to it, we talked a little bit about poor fit and about a tulip in a rose garden. And that can happen with a parent-child relationship too. That it's unfortunately just not a great fit between what your nervous system needs and what their nervous system needs. Maybe they really have a lot of energy they need to get out, but that's not so great for your nervous system in terms of overstimulation. So really figuring out how can you take breaks when you need them in a way that isn't perceived as abandonment or invalidation by your kids. And, And how can you model some of this more positive narrative around high sensitivity. So if you do need to take a break, not mentioning it in a self-deprecating way or using judgmental language, not saying something like, oh, well, as you know, mommy's kind of neurotic or mommy needs things in a kind of specific way. So really trying to own it with compassion. So one example of this I can share that just happened very recently, one or two weeks ago, was that I was bringing my son to Taekwondo and it was a Friday at, I want to say, 4.45ish. So there was way more traffic. I had had a really intense week, an intense day. I was feeling really overstimulated And I really felt like the last thing I want to do is be in the car for 45 minutes in traffic and then sit in this crowded bleacher area with other parents, disco music during the Taekwondo class. And the Taekwondo Taekwondo teacher is amazing. He's been teaching Taekwondo for many years. He's a very well-revered person in the world of taekwondo he also has a love for disco which I really appreciate but it is a bit and I do love disco but not on a Friday when I'm overstimulated so anyway 
The point is, I was really feeling super depleted. I was actually starting to get a bit of a headache. And so on the way, I explained to my son that I was feeling pretty overloaded and I asked him, would it be okay if I sat in the car for the first 20 minutes of your class and then came in towards the end? Because I do want to see you and I understand if you're disappointed to not have me there for the whole time, but I think I will be more present and more able to really plug into what you're doing and to cheer you on if I take that kind of break. And he thought about it and he said, yeah, I think that would be okay. And then we had a bit of a conversation about any times that he ever doesn't feel in the mood to be around a lot of people. And I said, do you, I'm having this day where I just don't really feel like being around a lot of people right now with it being so hot and crowded and noisy. And do you ever have days like that? And he said that he did. And so it was a really... I think effective way to have this conversation to balance taking care of my needs and his and he got it. So I do think that there are ways that we can make these negotiations in a way that also shows our children, oh, my my mom is observing what she needs. She's asking for it. She's trying to negotiate it with me. So we really are modeling self-care and appreciation and reverence and respect for high sensitivity rather than trying to push through. Another area in which I think it's important to think about boundaries that I didn't mention at the beginning of the episode is energetic boundaries. So as HSPs, we often absorb other people's emotions, even if they're people that we don't really know that well. It could be someone in a grocery store that just really looks like they're having a bad day and we really take that on. So there, this could be a whole episode in and of itself, and maybe it will be someday. But for now, I just wanted to share some ideas that have been really helpful to me when it comes to energetic boundaries. So one is visualization. So as you can imagine, being a coach and a therapist and working with people who are experiencing significant life stressors or challenges, there's often a lot of emotion present. And I love and adore all of my clients. And so I really feel with them. And I do think that that is something that does make me good at what I do. So I I don't want to diminish that, but I also don't want to get so flooded by my emotions that it gets in the way of my work and takes away from the person that I'm focusing on. So something that I learned from one of my mentors many years ago was this idea of some kind of visualization that embodied this idea of supporting someone but not taking on what is theirs to own. So for example, this idea of potentially delivering a baby and then handing it back to the person. So often I have this visualization in mind as I'm hearing someone share about something that's emotionally intense of me receiving this baby and then handing it back to them. You could also think about an image of a screen door between you and the other person or some kind of bubble. So it's transparent. You can still see them. You can still hear them. You can still feel what they are saying to some extent, but there is some kind of barrier between you and them. So you're not absorbing anything. There is some kind of protection. 
Another metaphor or image that I find really helpful is this idea of putting things in a backpack for later or a box. So for many years I had this image of a box and I was talking about this with a client recently and she talked about how she had transformed this into the idea of a backpack. So the idea that when someone is sharing something with you or you have an inner experience that's really stressful but you're not in a place to really deal with it in that moment, rather than suppressing it or completely leaning into it, you put it in your box for later or you put it in your backpack. So I actually think I prefer the backpack metaphor. So thank you to this client for sharing this with me because it really embodies this idea that you can carry it around with you without it necessarily affecting you in a way that is dominating. So you're still carrying it. You're still honoring it. You're still holding space for it. It's in your backpack. It is a weight in your backpack, but it's not something that you're unpacking in that moment. So I think the the other reason that I love this metaphor is because as HSPs, even if we don't attend to something in the moment, it is important to come back to it. So in the past, I've also kind of written things down. So if I'm really holding space for someone else and something of my own gets activated, I'll write it down on a piece of paper as something to come back to and I'll put a circle around it as as a symbol and signifier to myself to come back to that. So I think considering energetic boundaries is also really important in addition to all of the different kind of boundaries we spoke about at the beginning of the episode, boundaries related to physical environment. Is there a certain sacred space in your home that can just be yours or even the corner of a room that can be kept and decorated in the way that is really soothing to you? How might you organize or structure your schedule in terms of sensory breaks, vacations, time of day that you go places and even this balance of self-care and alone time and um, containers that need to be created to support you in sensory overload. So once you become aware of what you need by tuning into your inner landscape then the next step, the fourth and final step, is to implement it. So many times this is something that we implement on our own and other times we need to ask for someone else to change or shift something or perhaps in the case of a romantic partnership or parenting, we might need to ask for help from someone else to, in order to support the shift that we feel that we need to make to support our nervous systems and ourselves. So oftentimes boundaries require conversation with other people. Sometimes it's something we can do on our own and sometimes not. Sometimes we simply want to let someone know that we have created a container or boundary so that they don't take it personally. So there's room for conversation there. But when it comes to articulating what you need and want, there is a model that I find to be very helpful. I use it in my own life very, very often. And I talk about it a lot in episode six, the episode on observing limits in ways that can build resilience. So I encourage you to check out that full episode for more detail, but I'll just give you a little bit of a synopsis here. So there is an acronym that is used to describe this model, which is DEAR. It's The full acronym is DEAR MAN, but I'm just going to talk about the first part. And this comes from dialectical behavior therapy, which was developed by 
Dr. Marsha Linehan, who's an incredible psychologist, and she herself has struggled with high sensitivity in her life. And so she's a lot of personal wisdom to share in addition to her professional expertise. And my understanding is that this model is derived from both mindfulness-based practices as well as Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication, if you're familiar with that. But essentially, this acronym stands for Describe, Express, Ask, and Reinforce. So the describe is where you really set the stage for the context, for what you're responding to. So last night when our child didn't go to bed until 10.30, that might be coming from my personal experience, or when you came home and came into the bedroom without knocking something like that so you're describing the objective facts of the situation you're not inserting an opinion and you're doing that in a non-judgmental factual way then you transition into the expression where you express emotions needs preferences opinions so when you walked into the bedroom without knocking it startled me I felt scared I felt irritated, some kind of emotion. And you can add if you want, because I often need. So you could say something like, I felt startled because my nervous system tends to respond intensely when something happens that I am not expecting. And so then maybe the ask is something like, in the future, would you mind lightly knocking on the door before you come in? Or texting me something like that and then the reinforce is where you let the person know why this matters to you so if you would be willing to do this I would really appreciate it I think it would allow me to be more present when you have something important to say so essentially clarifying why it might benefit you personally why it might benefit the relationship so that they understand where you're coming from and it doesn't feel completely out of the blue and it often further incentivizes someone to then give you what you are asking and so with this model it's really helpful because you are non-judgmentally describing what it is that you're responding to so you're making sure that you're on the same page before you transition into expressing what you're feeling and what you need and that lays the foundation for your request so it doesn't feel out of the blue and then you're letting someone know why this is important to you. So I hope that's helpful but I definitely encourage you to check out episode six if you're interested in some more tips and strategies. So this episode packed a lot of punch into a short period of time, but we began by briefly reviewing the trait of high sensitivity. And as I mentioned before, you can also reference the episode prior to this one if you're interested in additional research and background information on that trait since we reviewed it very briefly today. We then discussed different kinds of boundaries and containers that can be helpful to consider as an HSP. And we also talked about common barriers to observing limits and boundaries and creating containers that HSPs often face. And then we concluded by talking a bit about four tips or strategies or principles for observing limits as an HSP. 
So I truly hope you found this helpful. I'm so happy that you joined me for this episode and carved out the time. As always, I would love to know what you think and so look forward to you joining me next time. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave a review. And if you'd like to reach out or connect more, I would love to hear from you. So please check out my website or follow me on Instagram. To find me on Instagram, you can search for Dr. Foynes. That is D-R-F-O-Y-N-E-S. And to learn more about me and connect via my website, you can visit melissafoynes.com. That is M-E-L-I-S-S-A-F-O-Y-N-E-S.com. Thank you so much for carving out the time to join me this week. And I look forward to having you join the next time.